Uh, let's turn in the scriptures to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter 3, we're going to be studying verses 8 through 17. We've been studying the first uh, letter that Peter wrote. Of course, Peter is one of Jesus' lead followers. He was the one who led the, the advance, the rapid advance of the church through the Roman world in the generation after Jesus died, rose, and ascended. He wrote this letter to persecuted Christians, Christians who had been forced to relocate from Rome to modern Turkey, to regions in modern Turkey. And Peter is encouraging them to remember, to have this mindset that suffering is normal. It's part of the Christian life. And Peter is teaching them, and he's teaching us, how to respond to unjust suffering. He says we should respond, if we're Christians, without fear, with joy, and with with love. And he describes how how that kind of a response to suffering will honor God and will be a powerful testimony for him in the world. We have titled this uh, series throughout this part of the year, Testify of Jesus. One of the ways we powerfully testify of him is how we respond to suffering. Today's passage, 1 Peter 3, verse 8, begins with the word, finally. Now, we're in the dead center of the letter, And you might think, oh, Peter is trying to conclude his letter at this point, um, but it takes him a long time to conclude, and he's like several preachers in that respect, guilty here. Um, Sometimes it's hard to land the plane, I get it. But Peter is not having trouble landing the plane. He's actually concluding the central section of his letter that began back in chapter 2, verse 13, where he started talking about how to respond to unjust suffering. And there in chapter 2, verse 13, he talked about unjust suffering at the hands of government. And then he would talk about unjust suffering in the realm of the workplace. And then he would describe unjust suffering in the home. And here he says, finally, he emphasizes in this passage, and I'm going to come back to this repeatedly through the day, it's the main theme. He emphasizes how our confidence about the future anchors us as we deal with present injustice. I've titled my message, Confidence Anchors Suffering Christians. Peter writes, finally, all of you. He's no longer addressing one group in the church, like those who are suffering in the workplace or or those wives who might be in a very challenging, difficult marital situation. He's now addressing every follower of Jesus to whom he's writing. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, and a tender heart and a humble mind. That is a cluster of five virtues, and in a classic Hebrew way, the central virtue is at the center. And there are parallels between one and five, two and four, and the third one is central. Peter is going to refer to brotherly love in a different way, but in a climactic way as well, in 2 Peter chapter 1, where he says, add to your faith, and he describes virtue, 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 and he says, above all, brotherly love. It's central in Peter's thinking. And then he quotes Jesus. This is really interesting. He quotes Jesus in Luke 6, 
when he says, don't repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, bless. Now, it's critical that you understand what Peter's commanding there. When he commands us to bless other people, he's not encouraging us to find our southern roots. Well, bless your heart. I'm not quite sure what that means, but that's not what Peter's commanding. Nor is he commanding any Christian to genuflect over another believer. Bless you. You know, he's not commanding some religious ritual. What he's commanding here is when people hurt you, pray for God to bless them. It's what Jesus taught us. Pray for God to bless them. He explains how we can do this. He says, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. And again, when Peter promises a blessing, he's not thinking of something trite, like if this morning you pray for God to bless others, you're going to hit every light green on your way home today. You're going to see a blessing. That's not the way he's thinking. He's thinking in significant ways. He's saying, you pray for God to bless other people even those who hurt you, because you've been promised a blessing. And Peter's concept of a blessing is, you're going to inherit the kingdom of the Messiah. That actually gives you the the foundation to be able to pray for those who hurt you. We know that Peter is using blessing in this way because of the way he explains it. Verse 10, he begins to quote from Psalm 34. He quotes from Psalm 34, verses 12 to 14. He explains, For, quote, whoever desires to love life and see good days, we might say to inherit the eternal kingdom, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And that's the end of his quotation of Psalm 34. Peter must have loved Psalm 34. It must have been a rock for him personally in his life. This is actually the second time in this letter he quotes it. He he alluded to it actually back in chapter 2 verse 3. When he, when he asked the Christians, have you truly tasted that the Lord is good? Quoting Psalm 34. Peter must have loved Psalm 34 because it reminded him of the very topic he's writing about. That if you have a future hope, it is absolutely life-transforming in the present. Future hope is life-transforming. And then based on this, Peter reasons. Look at verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for doing good? He might as well have quoted the main point of Psalm 34. Those who trust the Lord will never be condemned. God is going to deliver you out of all your troubles. Main point of Psalm 34. If that's the promise standing ahead of you, who's there to harm you? Ultimately, bad can happen to you. But, verse 14, even if you should suffer now for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. 
And again, his, his thinking behind that word blessed is you will be blessed forever. And here, I think he's actually referring to Jesus's words. Jesus's words in Matthew 5, where Jesus said, blessed are you when you're persecuted for righteousness. Great is your reward in heaven. We are truly blessed if heaven is our inheritance, if that's our reward. We don't need to fear any persecution. So Peter then continues to reason. He's just said, you will be blessed if you suffer for righteousness. So he reasons, so have no fear of anyone who might hurt you. Don't be troubled or or stirred up or upset by them. And here, if you know your Bibles, you know that Peter is alluding to Isaiah 8, verses 12 and 13. This is now the fourth reference to other scriptures in today's reading. We've barely read 10 verses. I hope you can see that Peter is a man who bleeds Bible. It's like he can't talk without referring to scriptures that he's taken in and treasured in his heart. It's powerful. Peter says, don't fear, but verse 15 In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Yet do this with gentleness and respect, with reverence for the Lord, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be the will of God, than suffering for doing evil. Hmm. Wow. This is a powerful and very practical passage. We just read 10 verses. How powerful. Peter's main point in this passage is that Christian hope is so life-transforming that it empowers us to love and to peace. It empowers us to pursue love and to pursue peace, even when we're suffering, even while we suffer. Christian hope is so life-transforming that it empowers us to live a life of love and to live a life of peace or fearlessness, even when we're suffering. Peter's central topic in these verses we read is the power of Christian hope. And he uses the word hope, but I need to clarify that when he uses the word hope, he's not using it the way we often use the word hope. Peter is using it to refer to confidence, absolute certainty about the future, right? Peter is not using it to express doubt. The way we use the word hope is is often like, I I hope I get a good night's rest tonight. It's kind of like, I doubt that it might happen. I, I hope it does. When Peter uses the concept of hope, he's not describing a, I hope it'll happen. He's describing an, I know it will happen. It's an absolute certainty. That's the concept of Christian hope that Peter's describing. This is a hope that fuels love, even when we're suffering. It's a hope that fuels peace, no fear, even while we're suffering. 
And uh, my points today are going to be a little clunky. I have two points, but they're going to be clunky just so you understand that when he says hope, he means absolute certainty, okay? So we're going to describe both facets of what this hope fuels. The first point is your hope. That is your confidence that you'll most certainly inherit Jesus's kingdom. That's what we're describing about hope. That's what hope means. Absolute certainty that you'll inherit Jesus's kingdom. Your hope fuels your love despite suffering. This is the first half of the passage we're studying. It's in verse 8 that he urges brotherly love. And as I pointed out in the reading, this is a cluster of five virtues that centers on brotherly love. And this love, if you put the virtues in around it, if you, if you start clustering it with the first and the last, you would say this is a love that's full of a heart for unity and a heart of humility. That is, we consider our brothers and sisters in the church to be teammates and we're not competitive with them. We consider them to be more important than we consider ourselves to be. It's that mindset that drives love. I'm not competing with you. I'm for you. I'm not against you. You're more important than I am. Peter says, put on this mindset. And then the second and fourth virtues, they're describing the emotional mindset that we have. We're emotionally involved with others, with sympathy and tenderheartedness. Here in this verse, verse 8, he seems to be stressing love for believers. And he knows, let's just step back and be honest, Christians. I will be the first to say it. When I am under stress, when someone has made a comment that hurts me, when someone has made a comment that seems to be either competitive or, or degrading, I get mad. I don't think of that other Christian as a teammate instinctively. It irritates me. It actually might ruin the next day or two of my life. And my kids might not know anything that's going on, but they know that daddy's more irritable today. This often happens. And it's why Peter, in the context of suffering, says you put on brotherly love. You pursue this virtue. He knows that when we're under pressure, it often frays our relationships. So Christians need to obey this. One pastor explains it like this. He says, presumably, this admonition would be completely unnecessary if churches were not prone to suffer from division and dissension. If we didn't suffer from things like this, verse 8 would have never had to be written. We do suffer from it, and we need to obey this. We need to put on brotherly love and the, the, the mindset of humility and the emotional involvement, the commitment to emotional involvement that it involves. Verse 9, however, Peter seems to shift from loving your brothers to loving your enemies. And it's here that he especially he stresses how our future hope fuels this kind of love, how we pray for those, pray for God's blessing on those who revile us. It's here that he quotes Psalm 34 a psalm in which David is suffering. David's life is being threatened. But in the middle of the song, the part that Peter quotes, David explains that those to whom God has promised an inheritance 
are powerfully motivated to live differently. If God has made promises to us, it changes our lives right now. And David actually articulates right in the middle of Psalm 34 that if we are promised a future inheritance and eternal life by God, David says, then we can be gentle in how we talk and we can pursue love in our relationships, harmony. We don't need to have the last word. We can, we can just be gentle and we can be harmonious. That's the part of the, the, the passage, the song that Peter is quoting. Now, some people misinterpret what Peter is saying, and they often misinterpret what David is saying. They think that Peter is saying you earn heaven by doing good. And some people say that David seems to be talking about a works righteousness, that you actually earn an eternal life in God's presence through doing good. Let me explain. If you look at verse 10, 1 Peter 3.10, they read it like this. If you want to see good in the future, then you must earn it by how you talk. That's how they read Peter's quotation of Psalm 34. Do you want to see eternal life and good forever? Then talk right. It's not what Peter is saying. They've actually got the logic of Peter and of David completely backwards. What David is saying is, If you've been promised good in the future, if this is what your heart's desiring, if your heart is set on what God has promised you, then show it today in the way you talk to others. Then you can be free to be gentle with others and to pursue harmony in your relationships. Both Peter and David are actually emphasizing how the promises of heaven change your life now and free you to be gracious, kind, loving toward other people. You might say, if you asked Peter, are you saying that that these good works earn you a place in heaven? Peter would say, no, 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 not at all. The way you live actually shows that you have this hope in front of you. It drives your commitment. There are two scholars, one from the Psalms and one from Peter, that explain, I think, just so succinctly what David is saying and what Peter is saying. Alan Ross, Old Testament scholar, says, there is no experience of God's goodness without corresponding godliness. If you have experienced the grace of God promising you the gift of heaven because you've trusted in the blood of Jesus, it'll change your life. That's what David's saying. Or Tom Schreiner says, living a godly life doesn't earn salvation. It's an evidence of it. Spot on. These these scholars are very clearly highlighting the logic of David and the logic of Peter who quotes David. We pursue godliness because we've been promised glory not to earn it. I want to stop here. I want to talk just a little bit about pop Christianity, right? Pop Christianity often pictures Peter as standing at heaven's gate. That when I die, going through the gates of heaven, Peter is going to be the bouncer there. He's going to be uh, checking people who are coming in. Now, this pop Christianity is not at all true. But I want to think about it a little bit. Because I think we can learn something critical. 
If you were to die today and you were to stand at heaven's gates and you happen to come up to Peter, the guy who wrote this letter, and he asked you, why do you think you should get into heaven? And you said, because I've tried to be careful in how I talk and because I've really tried to be good and and love other people. Do you know what Peter would reply based on this letter? Peter would say something like, there's no chance you're getting in here. Based on how he wrote this letter, if that's your response at heaven's gate, Peter's saying, you're not a Christian. If you're a Christian, you'd understand that no one gets in here by being good. According to Peter in this very letter, you might need a refresher by looking at chapters 1 and 2, the only way you get into heaven is through faith in Jesus' death, that he shed his blood for you. The only way you can be redeemed from your sin is if you trust that the lamb shed his blood for you to pay your, your punishment. The only way you get into heaven is if you trust that the lamb who shed his blood for you rose again. You can be born again through the resurrection and you can be given a promised hope that is kept for you, secured for you, if you will trust in Jesus who died and rose again for you, Peter would say that's the only way you're getting into heaven. You know this little joke about meeting Peter at heaven's gates? And he says, uh, so, uh, so how, how do you think you should get in? Everyone who gets in here should, uh, should, should come in with, with at least uh, 100 points. And someone says, uh, 100 points? How do you get points? He says, by being good. And the guy says, well... I was married to my wife for 52 years. Peter says, okay, you get two points for that. The man's like, what? I I never got a speeding ticket. We'll we'll give you a half point for that. The man starts scratching his head. He starts saying, the only way anyone can get in here is by the grace of God. Peter says, come on in. God gave his son for you. He he lived in your place. He died in your place. The only way you're getting into heaven, the only way is if you trust that Jesus is your Savior, if Jesus lived in your place, died in your place, and reconciles you permanently to God. That's what Peter would say. Now, second point. Second point. Your hope, that is, your confidence that you will most certainly inherit Jesus' kingdom drives out any fear of suffering. It drives out fear of suffering. Your hope drives out fear. Peter asks in verse 13, like I stressed in the reading, if heaven is your promised home, then can anyone really harm you? Can anyone really hurt you by what they do to you? And in verse 14, then, he reminds us of Jesus' promise that if you suffer for righteousness, your reward in heaven is great. And so Peter says, if this is true, if no one can really harm you, and if your reward in heaven is great, then don't fear. But verse 15, honor Jesus, the one who's the Messiah and Lord, Peter would use that exact language in his sermon at Pentecost. Jesus is both the Messiah, God's chosen king for this world, 
and he is Lord. God proved it by the resurrection. He says, honor Jesus as holy. If I were to put that into kind of like street language, I would say, consider Jesus to be the one and only human in the universe whose opinion of you really matters. Set him apart as utterly unique. There's no one like Jesus, the Messiah and Lord. Consider him to be utterly unique. His opinion of you is all that ultimately matters. And Peter counsels every Christian to be ready to essentially offer that as the explanation If anyone comes up to you and says, why do you have such a hope? Describe to them who Jesus is. Now, many times Christians read verse 15, and they think something like, I need to study how to defend my faith. That's the subject of apologetics. They need to study apologetics. I need to study how to defend my faith because Peter says in verse 15, I need to be ready to give an answer. And I want to go down that path just a little bit and then come back off of it. I want to say absolutely. The Christian faith, according to Peter, can be defended. If you think that there is a point of Christian faith that can't be defended, I'd encourage you to brush up, to read up. You need to be able to defend it. You need to understand that it is defensible. So let me encourage you to read so that you can defend your faith. What is the primary textbook for apologetics? I've got a bunch of books up here that I want to introduce you to. The primary textbook is right here. You need to know the Bible. You need to know the Bible for yourself. You need to know chapter by chapter by chapter what the main point is You need to read your Bible. You need to know it. So many people who attack the Bible as untrustworthy don't realize that thousands of years ago, the authors of the Bible themselves, the authors themselves actually addressed counter-arguments against the faith. The Bible is the primary textbook. Now, I actually find also some supplemental help in other resources. So if you're struggling with questions about creation, I'd say, look at Stuart Burgess, publisher day one. He's got two great books on creation. My favorite is Hallmarks of Design. This is one I quoted a few weeks ago, Danny Faulkner's The Heavens. It's astronomy from a Christian perspective. It's a beautiful textbook with huge, huge pictures, most of which he himself has taken. It's just phenomenal if you're asking, can the Bible be defensible from a creation viewpoint? How about from a historical viewpoint? Say, like, there are a lot of questions about the historicity of the Old Testament. You might not know, but most modern Egyptologists say there is no chance that Hebrews ever lived in Egypt. This is a book that I have started reading. I'm about 100 pages in so far this year. Outstanding book, Origins of the Hebrews by Doug Petrovich. It's phenomenal. It'll cost you a bit. This was very kindly given to me as a gift. It will cost you a little bit, but he goes through here and works through the hard facts to say there is compelling evidence that Hebrews were in fact in Egypt for a long period of time, that they ran out immediately, 
and he gives some pretty compelling evidence that the tomb of Joseph has been found. You say, okay, can I keep defending my faith? What about Jesus and the Gospels? I'd say, have you heard of like Peter Williams' book, Can I Trust the Gospels? Or have you considered the, the, the classic book by Lee Strobel, The Case for Christ? You say, I need something more academic. I've got The Case for Christ right here. This is a book by Mike Lacona. He is a phenomenal historian and New Testament scholar called The Resurrection of Jesus, A New Historiographical Approach. Outstanding defense of the resurrection, saying the resurrection is the most reasonable conclusion from the evidence. And about the last half of the book is dealing with modern scholars whose new arguments have come out saying the resurrection can't stand up to scrutiny, and he works through it very carefully and shows, no, actually, it can. The case for Christ or the resurrection of Jesus, two more that I'll I'll mention, are uh, Randy Alcorn's If God is Good. One of the greatest challenges that you might get to your faith is, can we actually trust uh, God when so much bad happens in creation? This is called The Problem of Evil. Randy Alcorn has an excellent, very easy-to-read book called If God is Good. Don't let the size of it intimidate you. You can jump in at any one of the chapters and find it immensely helpful. Or there's this little book. I found this really helpful by Greg Kukul called Tactics. And what he's describing is just how to have controversial conversations, how to, how to have conversations that when someone is disagreeing with you it is very helpful. I want to point all these resources out. I could, have, I could have easily quadrupled the number of books I brought up here, but I just want you to, to know, some of you may be in here as, as people who are exploring the faith, and you say, oh, I didn't realize that there are answers to questions like that. Some of you may be having conversations right now, and you say, boy, I'm chewing on the question that, that one of my coworkers asked me last week, and I still don't know how to respond to it. I hope this generates conversation. I hope this generates some confidence, not just by knowing that these are here, but by compelling you. Go to the Bible. Go to other scholars of the Bible who have answered common questions that come in attack against it. I would urge you to take these next steps. But now I want to step back from the rabbit trail, and I want to come back to verse 15, and I want to say, Peter isn't really saying that you should read books on how to defend your faith. I'm all for studying apologetics. I think you should do it. I do it. I think it should be a hobby for the rest of your Christian life. But he's not saying, start studying apologetics. Peter is stressing the importance of living in such a distinctive way that people ask, what makes your life and your choices so different from mine? He's imagining people saying, Why don't you talk like the rest of us do at work? Or why don't you get wasted with us like you used to? He's imagining a a Christian that has a hope that's been so transformative that our lives are different now. And Peter is urging us to live in a way that brings our hope to the surface, that forces people to notice that we live differently, and to ask why. It's really those sorts of conversations, those sorts of of daily informal conversations and questions that Peter says, get ready to answer. How do I know that Peter's talking about those sorts of 
objections or, or, or controversies, it's because he says in verse 16 that these conversations arise as people, look at the exact words, verse 16, revile your good behavior in Christ. In other words, each of us is going to face insults for living like a Christian. It might be because we don't live together before we get married. It may be because we don't use the foul and abusive F word in conversation. Or it may be because we simply stay out of office gossip. And when things in the break room start going in that direction, we just quietly bow out. You are going to get reviled for such behavior. Now, it's at this point, Pavel, that I want to speak to you directly. As often happens when I'm preparing for baptisms, I'm thinking throughout the entire week before, I am thinking of you who's preparing for baptism. And I'm thinking through this passage of scripture and I'm, and I'm thinking, how does this passage relate to what you're going through right now? And Pavel, I know that you've already faced reviling for the way that you live as a Christian. I also know that now that you've shared your testimony publicly and are part of this congregation of Jesus' followers, you have a bigger target on your back, as it were. Your enemy wants to ruin you. So let me urge you specifically, and I know all the rest of us are listening in, even as I give this word of encouragement personally to you, it applies to every believer. Let me urge you to pray every day that God would help you to obey verse 15. Pray every day that God would help you to think highly of Christ, to honor him as Messiah and Lord to honor him so highly that you, by comparison, don't care what your friends think about you. If you live caring about about what your friends think of you, honoring your friend's opinion of you, you you will head down the slippery slope of compromise. You will try to fit in with your friends by using foul language, by laughing at what they laugh at, or by trying to fit in with their lifestyles. But you need to obey what Peter says in verse 15. And you need to care ultimately about what Jesus thinks of you. To live in a way that is unashamedly distinctive. And don't fear that insults may come. In fact, expect them and expect them to be opportunities to testify of Jesus. Now, I want to conclude in this way. I want us all to to look back again at verse 17 and notice what Peter suggests there. Notice that Peter suggests in verse 17... That suffering for doing right may be God's will. It may be God's will. Think about that phrase. It may be part of God's plan for us. I want every follower of Jesus in this room to reckon that it may be God's will for us that we do right. Nothing wrong. We're not doing things wrong. We may do things right and suffer for it. I stress this at the end because there are some Christians who do not have a category for suffering like this. And it is dangerous if we don't. So many Christians think of suffering as a sign that we must be doing something wrong, that God must be punishing us for something. You know, just this week, the elders were interviewing prospective new members, and uh, one of them 
Amy said, I grew up in a church that insisted that godly people speak in tongues. It was the definitive mark that you were indwelt by the Spirit. And she said, I sensed that things weren't right, but it really took years to work through. She said in that context, it took years to unlearn that you follow Jesus for health, wealth, and prosperity. She had to unlearn that. And then she said, it took years to relearn that you follow Jesus no matter what, that you persevere through suffering. I thought that was such a powerful testimony. I wrote it down as she was sharing it. You see, we all must realize that until we see Jesus, it is God's will that every Christian suffer to one extent or another. Suffering is not abnormal Christianity. It's normal Christianity. Suffering isn't contrary to God's will. It is according to God's will. So I say, Tri-County, may our lives be marked by submission to the will of God. You may, along with me, right now where you're sitting, need to say, along with Jesus, your Savior, God, not my will, but yours be done. Whatever suffering you may have ahead for me, I submit myself to your will. Your will, not mine, be done. We submit ourselves going all the way back to the main point that Peter's making in this passage. We submit ourselves to present sufferings fearlessly. We do so in strong hope. We submit ourselves to the suffering that may be God's will in the strong hope that, I'm quoting the hymn we're going to sing here in just a minute, today's pain will soon be transfigured like Jesus' scars. We submit to suffering now according to the will of God, as the song puts it, because our anguish stories will soon be sung as victory songs of grace. May we all submit ourselves under the mighty hand of our sovereign God, sufferings and all. Let's pray.